attention over the last several weeks. So, so I'm going to ask you a question. What is the purpose of the church? What is the purpose? Not our church, the church, Big C Church, every church. What is the purpose of the church? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty good. Purpose of the church, just to kind of as a refresher, is that uh, the church is it should be about God's glory and God's mission. Right. Purpose of the church is God's glory and God's mission. So that's just something that we need to always keep in front of us. Because if we don't, we can start to drift into thinking that the purpose of the church is all about us, which it clearly is not, right? So God's glory and God's mission, that's what the church exists for, okay? All right. On Friday, June 12, 1987, President Ronald Reagan effectively brought an end to the most enduring symbol of the Cold War when he uttered the famous words, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. A little over two years later, in November of 1989, the separation of East and West Berlin was over. The wall had fallen. But as we will see today, not all walls take that long to remove. And as we look at the famous Bible story of Jericho, from the book of Joshua, let us at the same time look to tear down any walls that separate us from achieving God's purpose for our church and for our lives. Now I think um, one of my favorite verses is 1 Corinthians uh, 1, chapter 1, verse 25, which says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And I'd say if there was ever a story that sort of epitomized that verse, it's the story of the Battle of Jericho. And if you're not familiar with it, you'll understand why I say that in, in just a moment. So if you have a Bible with you and you want to follow along, you can turn to uh, uh, Jer uh, Joshua chapter 6, verse 1. If you don't, we have, we'll have it up here on the screen for you. So however you choose. So starting in... Uh, Chapter 6, verse 1. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of rams, horns, before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. Well, this is, this is clearly not the typical kind of battle uh, that Israel's going to fight in the future right? Jericho was a city that was prepared for siege warfare, all right, which was a very common practice in those times. And what you would do is you relied basically on this wall that you built around the city. Um, and there are examples of this, uh, you know, still today. In fact, when we were in Germany, Sally and I saw a, um, a city that still had a wall built around it. And it's, uh, it was 
preserved that way from really ancient times. This wall, though, was quite a bit more sturdy than the one we saw. This one was estimated to be 25 feet high and about 20 feet thick. This is a big wall, right? Um, so that's Jericho's side. They were, they were prepared. Now, cities in those days weren't very big, as we're going to find out later, because it was an agricultural society, so most people lived outside of the wall of the city because they farmed, right? But what the city was there for was when that area was under attack, when someone was trying to take that land, all of the people who lived outside would come in to the city, where, and it would be secured, and so they would be safe from any kind of uh, uh, attacking army. So that's Jericho's side. On the other side, you have Israel, who is completely unprepared for siege warfare. Because see, in siege warfare, you need things like battering rams, like siege ramps, which are built so that you can actually get over the wall. Uh, scaling ladders, obviously, would be important. And in fact, we don't really know if they even had any swords or bows and arrows or any kind of weapon at all. But they did have God on their side. And he gave them specific instructions, specifically to Joshua, and they were to be obeyed to the letter. Okay? Marching, trumpets, priests, ark, and a loud shout. Those were essentially the instructions. But he also gave them a promise. And verse 2 shows the promise. He says, I have given Jericho into your hand. Now this is what's called a prophetic perfect tense verb. And what that means is, it means that what God is talking about is there is a future event that is as good as already accomplished because God said so, right? God said it would happen. Um, and this is a theme that's not only here, but we see it in the New Testament as well. We see many places where you've got the certainty of God's promises that are balanced against um, the people's need to claim them, Right? There's God's part and there's our, our part. For example, we know that we are holy because of what Jesus did on the cross. But yet, we're still called to holiness. So there's a dual thing that's going there. We, we, something has already happened in Jesus, but we still have a part to play in claiming that holiness, okay. And so in this case, even when the victory is already won, you still have to claim the fruit to the victory. All right, so on to verse, uh, the next several verses. There we go. Is that right? It doesn't look right. Did it jump? There we go. No? For A, for B. Oh, okay. All right, I am completely confused. <laughs> One to four A. No, I don't think so. All right. Good thing you're here to help. All right, so let's go here. So Joshua, son of 
Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, walked on. And they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. So they did for six days. All right. Well, whatever you might think of their methods, they certainly had a clear strategy. So you have this armed guard marching ahead of the priests. Then you have seven priests with seven trumpets. Then the ark. Then the rear guard following the ark. The trumpets are playing all the time, but no one is supposed to be saying anything. Now, it, what, what was interesting is there's some question in the minds of some of the commentators whether or not all of Israel marched around the city or not, whether it was just these military men. Um, in reading a bunch of different translations, I don't, there's no question in my mind that everybody did this. Uh, all of Israel, I think, marched around the city um, together with the prescribed folks. But what exactly was the purpose of doing this? This was, you know, you just, like I said, it doesn't get a whole lot more odd in terms of how you go about winning a battle. And I think the purpose of all this was clearly, number one, to test Israel's faith, and number two, to show that the battle was in God's hands. Keep in mind, this was the very first thing they did once they actually entered the promised land. And so it was important that God set the tone for this right at, the, right at the outset. God was sending a message to his people. Now these ram horns, which uh, are also called shofars, those are used to call people to worship, okay, not to war. And the ark, which was in the middle of all this, indicated God's presence. So this was effectively not a war march. This was an extended act of worship. It became God's battle in every way possible. And the other thing I think that's important is the walls didn't crack a little bit each day. They marched around the city and everything looked exactly the same as it did before they started. And they did it on the second day and everything looked exactly the same as when they started. See, and they did that for six days. There was no change in what was going on. And so 
Every day they had to march by faith. They had to play trumpets by faith. They had to walk out each day by faith. And then eventually they would get to shout a cry of victory. Hebrews 11.30 tells us, By faith the walls of Jericho fell. After the people had marched around them for seven days, after they had marched, it was by faith that they fell. And so the first, very first battle in the promised land was a battle for faith. Now, you, one of the things that's curious about this story is, uh, I think so many people are influenced by what we learned when we were little in Sunday school, and we think of cities in terms of the way we think of them now. And we're thinking, God, this must have been an incredibly grueling ordeal. Well, would it surprise you if I told you that archaeologists have studied this and they believe Jericho was about a nine-acre mound with a circumference, that's a distance around, of about 650 yards. Six and a half football fields. That's not quite, it's a little bit more than a third of a mile. Okay, so it would have been pretty easy. I mean, that's about 15, 20 minutes walking at a reasonable pace. So I think we're influenced by this thought that it's like walking around New York. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't near that big. Like I said, the city was small because not very many people actually lived there. I mean, government officials, and I'm not sure who else, but everybody else was out living on their farms and working the land. So it was, it was a relatively small city. Now the last thing, and I, this is one of the most interesting, I think. Why did they have to march in silence? God didn't say to do that, did he? It was nowhere in the initial instructions. He was very specific about everything else. You know, seven of this, seven of that, seven days, etc., etc. Right down to when everyone was supposed to shout at the end. But he never said anything about silence. Well, here's what I think. I think Joshua was determined not to let history repeat itself. And here's what I mean by that. If you go back to the book of Numbers in chapter 13, God tells Moses to send spies into the promised land, right? He says, pick one from every tribe and send them into the promised land. This is years and years earlier, roughly 40, okay? And among the... 12 spies that he sent was a man named Caleb and, yes, you guessed it, a man named Joshua. All right? And so when they, they went, they checked everything out, and when they reported back, Caleb and Joshua were, were very enthusiastic. They were just ready to go and take this land because they knew God was with them and etc. But the other 10, not so much. They were full of fear and doubt, and they were worried, they were all, oh my gosh, you aren't going to believe how big the people are there, and um, it's awful, we'll never, you know, go on and on. And their fear overwhelmed the enthusiasm of the other two. And their fear was so great that it permeated the entire body of the Israelites. So much so that in chapter 14 of Numbers, we find this. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. 
And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. They weren't happy. They, at that point, felt like it would be better to be brutally enslaved the way they had been than to go forward into this land that God had given them. Now, keep in mind, God was with them the entire time they were in the wilderness, right? Cloud of flame, pillar of fire, pillar, yeah, whatever. God was with them. So what did God do as a result of their grumbling? 40 more years of wandering around in the desert until everyone who had witnessed what God had done in freeing them from Egypt had passed away. And I think Joshua was not about to let that happen again. Right? He'd lived through it the first time. He was ready to go. The entire nation grumbles against what God had promised them and here they're consigned to now wandering for a generation in the desert. And I think Joshua said, he looked at the people and he said, keep your mouths shut. Not a word until I tell you to say something. Because he wasn't about to let this happen again. That's why I think he demanded that they keep quiet. All right, verse 15 and 16. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. So this battle plan, which has remained unchanged for six days, now changes on the seventh, right? And so the Israelites march around the city seven times, and this time, there's this enormous trumpet blast, and that's the point when they're to shout. Now, a lot of people believe that Jericho was perhaps the oldest city known to man, um, or is the oldest city that we are aware of, because it was actually already an ancient city by the time this happened. Um, and it was, it was strategically located, which was why it had lasted so long. And so if you consider that this, where it was and this wall that's around it, you could position guards on the top and they could see for miles any advancing army or anybody that was trying to come against the city. And so, you know, here's this city in the Dead Sea Plain, which seems like a safe refuge against all of its natural enemies. But against the supernatural power of God, it didn't have a chance. And so verses 17 through 19 say, And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. 
But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury, treasury of the Lord. So when the hammer fell, it fell hard on, Je on Jericho. The city was burned and every living thing was killed. Now this brings up one of those really difficult questions in the Old Testament. Does this mean God is in favor of genocide? And in looking at this, I think that we have to understand what God says, that God never changes, right? And this, I mentioned this a few weeks ago where I talked about how growing up as a Catholic, I had this really negative impression of God, that God was this, this God, <laughs> the one that burned up cities and killed people. But New Testament teaches us that God never changes, that God is unchanging. The whole Bible teaches us that. So the God of love that we find in the Old Testament was there in the, in the New Testament was there in the Old. Okay? And I think, at least in light of the New Testament and its emphasis on God's love and the importance of community, I have to answer that question, no, that God is absolutely not in favor of genocide. And while that may make us feel a little better, it really still doesn't answer the question as to why God did this. I think the most obvious reason, which is the reason that's implied by the text, is that God did not want Israel, who was just kind of new in their faith, if you will, to intermingle that pure faith and trust in him with the pagan religion and, of, and, other, and worship of other deities. Another way to look at it might be to draw a parallel from the destruction of, the Canaan, of these Canaanites, which is who lived in Jericho, uh, with what happens in the book of Revelation when God's enemies are thrown into a lake of fire, never to trouble uh, humanity again. And so I think what we, the way we can answer that question is that God was trying to restore his kingdom to its original intent, which was what we find in Genesis, that when God created Adam and Eve in the garden before they fell and sinned. And, you know, really in thinking about this as well, maybe we're just right back to where we were in 1 Corinthians one twenty-five, where it said, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. We just don't know. And of course, Rahab, who had harbored the Israelites and kept them from being uh, from killed when that original group of spies went in to scout out the city, um, was spared. She and her family were spared from all of this. So then our final verse, verse 20, is sort of the culmination of everything. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. You know, I guess I always imagined that when they shouted, they would all do this together. But I don't know how that could have happened. Because you've got I think, millions of people, I think, at this point. At least hundreds of thousands. And there's no way that um, they're all going to start at the same time. And so I, I have a feeling like th these trumpets blew. 
And those that were closest could hear, and it was sort of this growing crescendo. Sort of like when, a, when something like that starts at a sporting event, right, and it just kind of builds. The wave, exactly, that's what I had thought of. It's like it just starts in one place and it just kind of just grows. It must have been amazing to hear. So, well, what does all that kind of mean for us? And I, in this, I'm applying this to the church, but I think it's, it's very easy to apply this to your own life as well. And so the big idea for today is this, that our church needs wall-dropping faith. That's what I'm calling it, wall-dropping faith that allows us to do the impossible, the extraordinary, even the insane, and come out victorious. By insane, I just mean something that doesn't seem at all, but people would look at you and go, you're crazy if you think that's going to happen. <laughs> right? Sort of like, hey, we're going to march around this wall seven times and it's going to fall. Oh, you're absolutely out of your mind. So what's necessary for our church or for you individually to have wall-dropping faith? Well, let's look at that. I think, first of all, everybody gets involved obediently using the talent and skill that God gave to each one. You see, the thing that occurred to me as I was reading this was that the entire nation of Israel was involved. Everybody had something to do. Some had special skills that they put to use, such as uh, the military, such as the priests. Um, I've tried to blow a shofar. I know it's not the easiest thing in the world to do, so maybe there were some priests that could blow the shofar and some that could not. And so um, perhaps, there, you know, so those folks that could do that were given that assignment. And it, but everybody else didn't just sit back and watch and let, you know, sort of the religious and military factions do their thing. They all had to, to walk this out. And this is no different than what we've talked about countless times where we've, you know, used Paul's various analogies of the church as a body and each body part having some function, all of which are necessary to have a healthy and functioning body. See, the point, I think, is that Jericho was completely closed off. If you go back to verse 1, it says it was shut inside and outside. Nobody was coming out. Nobody was coming in. It was completely closed off. And it took every person doing what God had, had commanded to break down the barrier that was Jericho's wall. And to that I'll say this. There are people out there that you encounter every day who have put up mental walls as thick as Jericho's physical walls in an attempt to keep God out of their life. And that's why it is so important for all of us to be involved, whether it's serving within the church or inviting those on the outside to come in. No job is too small or too unimportant. And many don't involve any special skill. I, you know, I've said this before, I'll say it again, especially in this context. Walking around the city was not a spiritual gift. There's a lot. 
inviting somebody to come to church by giving them one of these cards does not require a spiritual gift. It just, it's a choice you make. So that's point one. Everybody gets involved. Number two, we maintain faith and trust in God even when it appears nothing is happening. See, to grow a church, to, to grow this church to where we want it to be, to be full of people on Sunday, to have two services where it's full of people on Sunday, that's not going to happen overnight, right? We're not going to... Um, you know, go out, hand out a few of these cards and think, oh, okay, good, we're done. That's why the emphasis, that's why I said, you're going to find these on your chairs every Sunday for a year. I don't expect that this is going to happen overnight. And let me tell, tell you something, that is hard for me. I am impatient. If I don't see, see results happening from something right away, I'm right or wrong, I'm going to start changing stuff. That's just, that's the way God made me, okay? And so it's not easy for me. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not built for the long haul. I want to see something happening now. And so... I've got to fight this attitude, and so do you. Right now, we don't have a worship leader. That's hard for me. <laughs> but the thing is, if it takes us a year to find the right person, then we have to trust that God knows exactly who that person is today and is just spending this time preparing them and us for their arrival. Like I said, the empty seats are not going to fill up as just after a few weeks of us inviting people. It's like talking to Terry earlier today. She invited someone, but she's pretty certain they weren't going to come. Well, that's okay. That's that's your part. You do the inviting. That's all you can do. If you bring them here against their will, that's called kidnapping. <laughs> we don't want to kidnap people. All you can do is invite. Okay? But the thing is, if, n if you invite and nobody shows up, does that change God's purpose? No. Uh-uh. It does not. We have to, that's why I started this sermon by talking about how important it is to keep our focus on, on why the church exists, God's glory and God's mission, right? Now, the last point, words of unbelief are never spoken. In the epistle of James, he writes at length about the destructive power of the tongue. Many of you have read those verses, right? And I, I would say that in the context of what he's writing, it seems to be about the damage that our words do to other people. Right? But sometimes, and I would even surmise frequently, we sabotage ourselves by the things we say. 
Grumbling and complaining and generally negative comments are things that we cannot afford to speak out loud. You see, there's something extremely powerful about the spoken word. Remember back to the opening verses of Genesis. And the words there are, and God said. Those words are there roughly eight times. And each time God said, a different part of creation came into existence. What do, what do the opening verses of the Gospel of John say? In the beginning was the Word. And he's talking about Jesus. Jesus was called the Word of God. Spoken Word of God. But words can be either powerfully positive or powerfully negative. Just as we saw Israel sort of found out when they started grumbling and complaining against what God had told them to do, and oops, they're without a home for another 40 years. I am going to tell you something right now that is going to shock you to the very core of your being. This church is not perfect. I knew you would be. I'm not perfect. John and Andre aren't perfect. And here's another big surprise. None of you are either. Not having a worship leader is not a perfect situation. People leaving the church in the midst of our working diligently to grow the church is not a perfect situation. Our church not being visible from the street is not a perfect situation. Not having our own building, not a perfect situation. But we cannot use the creative force that are our words to give voice to the inevitable negative thoughts that occur over those situations or any other. You can't stop from thinking them. You can try, and I mean, I think it's good to try. Because I think the more positively you think about things, the better your attitude is. But the one thing you can try to control is whether or not you give those thoughts become words that are spoken out of your mouth. That is something that you can have control over and need to have control over. And by that, I am not saying by any stretch of the imagination that if there is a problem, we don't say something about it and then go on to address it, right? That's, that's biblical, and we want to follow the biblical model in doing that. You know, you go to the source of the problem, you say, hey, look, I've got this problem with something you said, something you did, this or that, whatever, and then you deal with it. But what I'm talking about is this exact same sort of grumbling and complaining. And, and, and listen, I'm not saying we're doing that a lot. All I'm saying is we need to see the example that's presented here in Joshua and also in earlier in Numbers and understand that there's a spiritual principle at work there and begin to speak positively. And so 
your faith and action points this week are pretty simple. And it addresses the three that we just talked about. Serve gladly. Find a place to get involved and put your back into it and do it with a smile on your face. <laughs> right? That's what we've got to do. Takes, it's going to take all of us. Right? Secondly, believe unwaveringly. Those folks kept walking around that city, and you know some of them had to be thinking, all right, seriously? We've done this for five days now. There's not even a crack in this wall. And oh, by the way, it's 20 feet thick. This is stupid. I don't know what the Hebrew word for stupid is, but I'm sure, pretty sure they said it. Somebody did. Well, at least they didn't say it while they were marching because Joshua pretty clearly told them not to. But they were thinking it. But we can't let those kinds of thoughts uh, to have sway over us. We have got to believe unwaveringly that we are doing what God's called us to do and keep at it. And like I said, this is hard as heck for me. Because if something doesn't have immediate results, like I said, I'm just ready to, all right, well, let's try this. Well, we can't be like that. I can't be like that. And so we've got to, and I mean, I think it's that way in your own life too. You know, we've got to have that faith that believes unwaveringly in the promises that God have, has made to us. And then finally, speak positively. We just got through talking about that. There's power in the tongue. And I think many of us are guilty, in a sense, of bringing curses upon ourselves by virtue of the words that we speak. Oh, I can't do that. I'm not good enough to do that. What are you doing when you say things like that? Who, who is it that you're believing when you say things like that? It's not God. Doesn't leave too many other options, does it? So speak positively. Think positively. Serve gladly, believe unwaveringly, and speak positively. That is how we go about building wall-dropping faith that allows us to do the impossible, the extraordinary, and the insane and come out victorious. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. If I could have some folks up for prayer, come up to pray for people, please. I'm going to keep harping on this a little bit. You see, prayer is, is something that we do here not because we just think it's a good idea. You know, we're Christians. We probably ought to just pray for people. That's not why we do it. We do it because we believe that something is going to happen as a result of doing it. And the people that are up here believe that unwaveringly. <laughs> and so... Take advantage of that in this sort of last segment of our service. 
if, you, if there's something that you need somebody else to join with you and pray about, that's why these people are here. If there is something, if you're physically hurting in some way, then you should get somebody to pray for you, whether it's them or whether it's somebody else in the church. We believe that God heals. And so if you're hurting in some way, don't leave here without getting prayer. God's healing is, is, is a funny thing, and it's really hard because we struggle with the fact that it doesn't always happen. And that's a hard reality to deal with, and we don't always understand why. And I've seen so many different iterations of that in terms of people that have great faith that don't get healed and people that have no faith get healed totally. And it doesn't make any sense. And so once again, we're back to 1 Corinthians one twenty-five, where God's foolishness is wiser than the wisest of men's wisdom. And God's weakness is stronger than the strongest man's strength. And just because we don't understand why something does or doesn't happen is not a reason not to do it. Because God tells us to do it. Jesus told us to do it. And he told us if we'll do it, then even greater things will happen than what happened when he did it. Which is a staggering statement if you take it at face value. And so as we close our service today, know that this time is, is a time for for receiving prayer. It's a time for just sitting quietly. If you want to just pray. And it's okay if it's time to go to lunch too. This is your time. And so let's pray. Father God, I just I thank you for, for this word from this old story that we are, are, are most of us are so familiar with. Help us as we think about it in this coming week to, that it would be uh, a call to action for all of us. That the lessons presented in this story would inspire us to have the kind of uh, wall-dropping faith that is so necessary in this day and time. Help us as we try to put this faith into action. Keep us positive, especially in our speech, that we don't dwell on the negative, but all become people of such, uh, such positive character because that is so attractive to other people. So we just give you thanks and we give you praise. Bless all those gathered here. Keep them safe and at peace until we have the chance to be together again as a group. We give you thanks and praise. And we ask all this now in the name of Jesus. Amen.